Hello, hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. And I am your host, Maria Cernat. I am an academic based in Bucharest. With me today is Pat Byrne, a Marxist, a labor activist and a frequent guest to our show. Thank you for being here with us, Pat. Welcome, Maria. Great to be here. So we are going to discuss a complex issue, a complex um, concept and also a political concept related to human rights. Human rights are currently discussed, debated, and we saw that a number of countries pushed for Russia to be excluded from the Human Rights Committee in the United Nations Organization mm -hmm. and It is so interesting to have a broader and a more uh, comprehensive perspective on this concept that unfortunately we are seeing today that it is used sometimes for punishing um, other countries, some countries while ignoring what other countries are, are doing. Let us not forget that just two weeks ago, Saudi Arabia killed in one, just one day 81 persons. And as I recall, a, a couple of years ago, they actually chaired the Human Rights Committee in the United, United Nations. Now, this is only a very, very short introduction to this very complex phenomenon called the human rights. Now, I want you to give us a little bit of a historical perspective. Uh, what are the human rights? Uh, when it was important to discuss human rights? And uh, how was it that from a very, I would say, generous, important and crucial Uh, element of democracy would ended up in uh, some sort of fight where human rights are often used to smear some country that doesn't agree with um, South, uh, with the United States or um, uh, other Western power. Well, I, I would uh, tend to think that human, well, I mean, human rights go back obviously to the dawn of, of uh, humankind, but Uh, if we if we could talk about it in in the more relatively recent history, I would say that the the concept of human rights really um, you know became prominent in the bourgeois revolutions, the capitalist revolutions in in England and in France, um, and probably uh, came to have a, a big meaning in the, from the 19th century onwards. And it was generally speaking that the it was the progressive organizations and uh, working class organizations in the 19th century that uh, and socialist organizations that were the main champions for human rights, along with you know having the right to vote and other elements of democracy. Um, now, <clears throat> a strange phenomenon is, and and this kind of um, in the war in the Second World War um, because. The Second World War was a large part of it was fighting the uh, the fascists in in Italy and the Nazis in Germany and the kind of I don't know how you describe it, the right wing um, militarists in Japan. Um, it it ended up that that war took on, took on elements in the West, or radical elements, you know. Um, so when the when the uh, the United Nations was launched in 1945. 
it was there was a, a pretty radical mood at the time, and um, uh, even even America at that point was um, was uh, quite radically orientated in, in many aspects. And so as a result, they they came out with the they they really recognised the need to have a charter of of fundamental rights in the United Nations, which they developed um, in the next few years. Um, and that has been added to something that most people are not aware of, is that that Charter of Fundamental Rights has been added to significantly over following decades with very important um, clauses added to it. Um, so it actually stands, the, the Charter of Human Rights stands as a, a powerful um, statement of what uh, people need to have a decent life, what rights they need to be able to live peacefully and so on. Uh, and that's maybe a good start, a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so definitely, I would say that unfortunately, because there were added elements and because societies developed in very different ways, it was impossible to have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Why do I, what do I mean by that? It is clear that our societies... Um, meaning the Europeans, meaning the United States, Canada, uh, we enjoyed um, liberties and freedoms, for instance, for minorities, for women, whereas other societies um, were finding it challenging to pursue the same course. And, you know, it is a very... A very complicated story here. I just um, I just had a, a presentation of my article in an international conference called Afghanistan, Feminism and Bombs, uh, where I discussed this very controversial thing. I mean, you see that women in other parts of the world, especially the Middle East, are being discriminated against, but what do you do? You cannot bomb feminism into a country. You cannot bomb human rights into a country because that would make you a bigger oppressor than the local ones. So how do you do? How do you tackle with these things? It's very complicated to find a solution, isn't it? And um, while we are here, we we still have to to we have to address this issue. How do you advocate? for human rights without becoming yourself a neo-colonial uh, a neo-colonialist an elitist and a person who wants to impose what should be a democratic process that would start bottom up and not impose it and not uh, transforming yourself and not becoming the very thing that you want to fight against right well I uh, perhaps it would be a useful thing to um, uh, show a graphic. I've, I've prepared a couple of graphics to mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. contrast the the way that human rights is expressed in the West and looked at and thought about in the West, and the way it should be thought about, which are two very different things. So let me let me share my screen, okay, if I can. Um, yes. Hold on a second, let me open up this here. Okay, and then um, here we go. Let's see if I can bring this up. If I can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, here we go. There we are. That's it. Okay, so 
<clears throat> and let me click here. All right, so this is the kind of Western version of how of how human rights are, are, are seen. <clears throat> so you can see this like a under the human rights tree, as they put it here. And you'll see all kinds of things here like um, sexual reproductive rights, um, freedom of conscience, freedom from torture, freedom of religion, etc. These are the standard things that people consider to be human rights. But I'm going to go and show you what I think. These are hum definitely human rights, but that's only a small part of the picture. And I think that, that by missing the whole picture, we make a lot of mistakes. So, for example, here, let me, <clears throat> let me look at here. I think we have to look at a whole series of other human rights before we can get to the ones that the West is talking about generally, about the right to vote, uh, right of free speech and so on. So let's look at these ones. So <clears throat> first of all, um, that the, is the right here of national sovereignty and territorial integrity. Now, <clears throat> why, do we, why do we mention that? Now, the reason is because if you don't, if a country doesn't have um, a, a control of its own uh, land and, um, you know, unity of its land, none of the other human rights actually work. They usually all collapse because, effectively, what it means is that if another country, not your country, if another country is controlling you, then if you're not happy about things, you're not getting, uh, you're not get, you're not getting what you think are your rights, what can you do about it? You can't do anything about it. So the, the most basic building block of democracy and human rights has got to be that you have control over your own country. Now, an example, um, let, let me give the example of China. China has always said, oh, China doesn't respect human rights and so on, right? But one of the great, great achievements of 1949, the 1949 revolution, uh, which introduced the People's Republic of China, was that it, it was able to, for the first time for 100 years or more, to be able to unite the country and to free it of control by the other foreign countries like Britain, um, France, America, Japan and so on, who, were, who, had been, who had invaded China and had taken over chunks of it. So <clears throat> then, we, then we come, once you establish this, this right, this national sovereignty and territorial integrity, which, by the way, are... Little known, but very important clauses in the in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the United Nations. So then, the next one we look at is the right to life and to peace. Now, <clears throat> what do we mean by that? We mean things like, you know, having having health services, even if they're of a basic kind, are absolutely essential. If, if people are, you know, when they get disease, if they have accidents or whatever, that they can actually. Um, have health services to save their lives. Um, similarly, if if you've got if a country is racked with with crime, um, then then how are people going to have any security? And people are going to get killed, um, and so on. And the similarly with if you have national disasters, uh, which you know historically was was a major problem. Um, now a nation state has to be able to deliver. If it wants to protect life and provide peace for the population, it has to provide these services. And these are the basic for you to be able to live. And, and tied to that, of course, is this right to basic necessities. So we're talking about here food, uh, clothing and so on. If you don't have these things, you're not going to last very long. You're going to die. You're going to get ill. 
Oh, your children are going to die. You're not going to survive. So these are these are actually absolutely basic human rights. And without them, what do any of the other human rights mean? They don't mean anything. I mean, if you don't if you don't have the right to health um, uh, and support, if you don't have the right to food, clothing, and basic things like that, you're not going to be interested in politics. You're not going to be interested. You know what good is um, uh, all these other uh, human rights that the West talks about? So these are absolutely crucial. Then moving up, then obviously the right to employment and support. So, you know, the right to have a job, the, the ability to have a job, uh, if you can work, is absolutely essential because otherwise you're not going to be able to feed your family, feed yourself, etc. You're not going to be able to clothe yourself and all the rest of it. And if, you, if you're not able to work, because there are sections of the population who can't work, like children, um, retired, disabled, and so on, if you're not able to work, you need to have the society, you have a human right to get some kind of financial and other support from the community, from the government, to keep you alive. So these are, these are such basic uh, rights, human rights, that people need to be able to, to thrive. Then there is the right to education, because obviously if you don't have the right to education, then you're, you're not going to be able to make progress in life. You're not going to be able to uh, raise up the, the population and the skills and, and economy. Similarly, the right to transport. I mean, people don't see this as a human right, but it, it is. The, the ability to move around in a, reasonable, you know, in a reasonable speed, in reasonable comfort, and at a reasonable price is absolutely essential because otherwise you're locked into um, the location you're in and you're not able to move to take advantage of work opportunities, leisure opportunities, education, whatever it might be. Um, so right, the human right to transport. Then there's the right to housing and, 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 and public utilities. So, for example, if you haven't got anywhere to live, if you're living on the street, you're not going to be interested in politics or, or you know, you're not going to be so worried about discrimination and so on because you're, you're in a desperate state, you know, and, and people who live on the street are, um, are, are vulnerable to all kinds of abuses. And, and if, you're going to ha if you have housing, you've also got to deliver clean water, sewerage facilities, uh, power to um, run things in your house and so on. And last but not least is the right to a clean, safe environment. So all these are very, very basic human rights without which life is not really worth living. Um, uh, but these are never talked about, hardly ever talked about in the West. Now, why is that? So that what they tend to do is they talk about these ones here. Right to justice. These are all very important. Right to justice, you know, have a fair trial freedom from torture and arbitrary detention by the police or armed forces, the right to vote, so you can influence governance at all level, um, the right to express dissent and to organise at work in the community, freedom from discrimination over thought, religion, race, gender, mm -hmm. sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, etc. These are all, now these ones here in purple are all the kind of rights that the, the West talks about. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that none of them work if you don't have the ones underneath. And that's, and that's the problem. Um, so, for example, when they judge China, they say China's got no human rights. That doesn't make any sense because China has been the most successful country in the human history to deliver all these human rights in, in the red part. And then slowly but surely, they're improving these ones in, in the purple side because, you know, China's coming from being a very poor, <clears throat> massive population country, uh, underdeveloped country, and it takes time. So you mentioned the fact that Obviously, if, if a country is poor 
and its economy is in a mess, it's not going to be able to deliver these higher levels of human rights that the West talks about. And what the problem is that they're not addressing how do we deliver the first, the basic building blocks of human rights to be able to then go on to develop these other ones. So that's just the, the main point I wanted to make here. Yes, uh, thank you so much. I mean, I was, um, do you want me to stop sharing? Um, yes, please, yeah. So I think you're right in uh, discussing human rights in uh, this um, ma manner and um, making viewers pay attention to this huge difference between so to speak, um, economic basic human rights, and then you have the political human rights, the political part mm. where you have the right to freedom of speech uh, and freedom of assembly, the right to vote, reproductive rights, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's very important to keep that in mind. It's very important. And you know what is interesting? A couple of years ago, I was reading Asayah Berlin, who is no Marxist. He's a liberal, actually. And he said in his four essays on liberty that offering people who are hungry and in absolute destitution civil, in po civil and political rights means to mock those people. He said that. I mean, every decent liberal Marxist and every decent human being, after all, should admit that if you are so poor that you cannot feed your children, you cannot feed yourself, the right to vote means little to nothing, right? Because you have a survival problem. So the first human rights we should focus on is, of course, um, having a, a decent standard of life. And I would like to bring here uh, the research of Jason Hickel, uh, Jason Hickel has a very interesting story to tell because he lived with his parents who were doctors in Africa. And why do I say that he has a very interesting story to tell? And I urge the, view the viewers and uh, everybody to read his book, The Great Divide, because he was convinced that the way to move forward for poor countries was what? Structural, structural adjustment, loans from the IMF, and actually listening to what the Westerners were saying that is the best recipe that would cure poverty forever. And he actually tells this story, it's very interesting in his book, that he went back because he was so impressed of the people who are so poor and came to his parents to... to to be, uh, because his parents were doctors and they came there and he saw how, how they were suffering and the poverty and everything else. And he came back as a true missionary to solve the problem. <laughs> and what he found out was that basically the very thing that was sold as a medicine against poverty was the poison that was producing the poverty. And how did he discover that? Because World Vision, I think it was the, um, the great NGO, it's a very big NGO that employed him, asked him to do a research on the causes of poverty. And he discovered what? 
huge loans that were impossible to pay by the poor countries, a dependence, economic dependence, the fact that those countries were not able to develop economically on their own, and on top of everything else, some charity given to those people to forget about all these issues. And when he presented that, this report to his bosses, the bosses said, don't rock the boat, shut up, move on, because if we publish this report, we are not going to get any kind of money and you won't be able to save and to give the little money that you have to the children you're actually helping now. Because the very people producing all these structural problems were also financing the charity. So it, it's somehow a very perverse and very twisted business model where you have the same organizations producing um, poverty and lack to basic resources guaranteeing basic human rights and the same time, they are the ones providing charity and packaging everything into a very shiny uh, and glittery, you know, uh, light. And this is unbelievable. I mean, his book is incredible in explaining step by step how unfortunately, especially since the 80s, what was being sold as the perfect medicine for poor countries was actually the poison. Loans, huge loans that countries could never pay back. And then structural adjustments. Okay, I gave you the money, says the IMF or the, the World Bank. Now you have to play, as I say, right? I gave you the money, so you have to do structural adjustments. Meaning what? Privatization. Privatization of every resources, every... Everything that you can think of, even water, for instance, it can be privatized. Um, then what? Opening up your economy to foreign investment. No tariffs, no protection for your local agricultural sector, nothing of the sort. And this is being sold as a great opportunity, right? While in fact, it produces a huge dependency of those countries from the countries that are actually borrowing the money. And it is very interesting that um, also talking about basic human rights, he explains step by step how this story of development that was being sold to the poor countries as the perfect medicine that they called structural adjustment uh, was actually making people worse. So in order to hide all that, what the World Bank did was to, and the United Nations was to, to somehow um, come up with all sorts of trickery to hide this, to say that, oh, we should establish the poverty, uh, the poverty line at, at $1 a day. I would make that economist live at $1 a day for the rest of his life, you know, because I mm. think it truly deserves it. 
And uh, they came up with all sorts of things to make it look like there is less poverty. Well, in fact, if you do a solid research, and Jason Hickel does that, he shows that almost 60% of the world population lives in, in poverty. If you think that $8 or $10 a day would be the limit, then you have 60% of the population living below that. So, And let's say $10 a day, it's not something that uh, you can, you know, it doesn't guarantee a luxurious life. It's just the basic needs. So coming back to this, these were my comments. And I think that this is, is crucial to insist on this uh, idea of uh, economic human rights and how unfortunately the West is producing the very conditions for not being able to, to guarantee human rights for citizens in poor countries. But um, in uh, international um, documents, uh, uh, we have uh, a recent history of human rights, okay? We have this uh, human rights um, and also the idea of imposing sanctions to countries that do not that do not provide and do not offer their citizens uh, human rights. But this is very controversial, right? Because, I mean, in terms of uh, gover governments not offering rights to abortions, for instance, Texas would not... Uh, would be a, a perfect example of a part of the world that does not guarantee its citizens human rights. So. I feel that we are working here on a very, very, how should I say, um, it's very difficult to define human rights. And I think that the Western powers usually use those definitions that are somehow, um, how should I say, vague in order to be able to target the countries that they do not like and to smear them as uh, not being able to, to guarantee human rights. Well, on that, the I mean, there was, you know, I, you remember I, I said at the beginning about how <clears throat> human rights were generally um, championed by the the people who were most affected by them and the organisations who were representing them, which is the union, trade unions and socialist parties and progressive organisations. Um, <clears throat> but a very strange thing happened uh, in the late 1960s because, you know, the 60s was a very um, uh, turbulent period with a lot of um, uh, rev revolts and revolutions and so on. And there was a lot of street protest and protests on university campuses all over the world and so on. <clears throat> and um, the, these protests had huge impact. Um, you know, like, for example, uh, Martin Luther King led the civil rights movement in America on behalf of black people and so on. And they had a massive impact on society. So the, 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 uh, in America, um, the, the CIA and other elements of the intelligence uh, state, they thought to themselves, they, they obviously looked at this and they thought, well, you know, these, these, this protest movements about civil rights, human rights, is having a massive impact that the left is leading. Maybe we could take a leaf out of their book. And they started to, um, certain key people like Gene Sharp and other people, started to study how to use um, protest methods um, 
and causes. And so basically they took the ideas of the left and the methods of the left and they started to repurpose them for the total opposite intention of, of destroying human rights, um, but doing it as if they were campaigning for human rights. And so <clears throat> we saw um, they, they borrowed the, you know, the nonviolent ideas of, um, of civil disobedience from Gandhi and Martin Luther King, and then they re repositioned and weaponized them. Um, and, and that's we see all these, <clears throat> the, the, the National Endowment for Democracy and all these other um, government institutions in America and, and Europe were set up uh, alongside uh, private institutions by George Soros and a whole number of other uh, billionaires. And what they did was they started funding these non-governmental organizations, these NGOs, um, and these NGOs were set up for democracy, for human rights, uh, all kind of different aspects. They started funding them, particularly in countries where they where they didn't like the government, and they saw they started using that and all these methods of street protest, which they 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 developed even more uh, sophisticated basis. They started using that whole kind of weaponry um, uh, to actually. Uh, eventually overthrow these governments in these uh, color revolutions as we've seen these <clears throat> regime change operations and so we've now got this strange situation where we've got all these american funded um you know anti-corruption organizations human rights organizations pro-democracy organizations which are all trying uh, so, so, some of the some of the work they do because they've got to justify so, to some extent they've got to justify their existence. So some of the work they do is okay, you know, some of the reports they come out. But the main thrust of these organisations is designed to overthrow the governments that they're of the countries they're operating in, or if not overthrow them, if they don't think that's possible, to to pressurise them <clears throat> to adopt policies that are favourable to the West. And of course, those favour those policies favourable to the West are all designed to. Uh, to make the rich richer and the big corporations um, more profitable and to increase inequality and increase the power of the West over the rest of the world. So it's become a complete, it's turned on its head, the whole human rights uh, movement. And it's a tragedy. And as you mentioned, <clears throat> uh, even those organizations, even those um, respectable human rights organizations that we're all familiar with, like uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Reporters Without Borders, etc., etc. <clears throat> All of these organisations have been effectively, um, uh, in most cases, taken over by these forces and and and, and weaponised against the the progressive forces in the world. Uh, an example I can give you is the Amnesty International, <clears throat> which started out in England as a very uh, positive movement designed to protect prisoners tried to get stop prisoners being, and most of these prisoners were on the left, as it happened, because they were protesting against right-wing regimes around the world, and to get to, to stop the torture of them and to try to get them out of prison. It started off like that, but now Amnesty International is being dragged in to all kinds of subjects that have nothing to do with that, and which are part of this um, you know American and Western uh, regime change strategy. An example being, uh, I, I looked at <clears throat> with horror, I looked at a doc, you know, because I used to be in Amnesty International. I thought it was a great organization. Oh, this but, is very interesting. Ben, tell us more. Yeah. So I used to be in, in Amnesty International and it was a great organization full of well, very well-meaning people. Um, and it's kind of got corrupted itself because 
you know, it's become a very large organization. It has to have a big running cost to maintain its uh, large number of staff and, and organizations around the world. And so, of course, probably within it, I don't know, you know, I'm not, not, I wasn't in the leadership of the organization, but I'm sure there were people who came and said, look, we need to improve our fu fundraising. And if we, do, we want to do that, we've got to do, we've got to change the, the things we concentrate on and, and take this line. And, and probably that, I'm not, I wouldn't say the whole of Amnesty International has gone that way, but large factions of it have become. So an example um, I saw was the report that they produced on um, the, the repression of the Uyghurs in uh, Western China. And, and it was a travesty of a report. I was so ashamed to have been associated earlier with Amnesty International and to read that report. It was like a lurid propaganda pamphlet. <clears throat> and they didn't, they, they were accusing all kinds of things without any facts in there. And, and they didn't, they didn't, they were accusing uh, the, 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 the Chinese of, of um, you know, killing lots of people, torturing lots of people. And they had, they had no photographs. So they were, what they resorted to was they resorted to uh, drawings and cartoons of, of dead bodies lying on the, on the floor with pools of blood. It was all. It was really um, hyperbole gone mad, and how they started the report. The first words of the report were, "Xinjiang is a hellscape." Unbelievable. And 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 and, and if anybody who goes to Xinjiang, of which there are millions of people going there on holiday, would laugh at this description. I mean, I haven't got time to go into this whole thing. Like, for example, they've got accounts of millions of Uyghurs in forced labor without a single worker's testimony. Unbelievable. They've got, they've got accused the, accused the um, Chinese of genocide. I mean, this, this word genocide is thrown around so much, but it, it's a serious accusation. <clears throat> but we haven't, got, we haven't got account of one single dead person. We've got no mass graves. We've got no refugee camps. It's, just, it's a farce. But for the fact that Amnesty International gets dragged into this propaganda campaign, it just shows you the way that human rights has been weaponized to do completely the opposite. I mean, the end result of this campaign on forced labor is that the situation now is that employers all over China are now laying off Uyghur workers because they're frightened that they'll be targeted for sanctions. I mean, unbelievable. And, and, and Uyghurs who who are uh, genuinely um, tilling their, their cotton fields and um, growing tomatoes and all the other things that they do are being, uh, are having, well, fortunately, I think the Chinese are counteracting that, but the, 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 this campaign to sanction them and boycott their products, what can it lead to? It just leads to poverty. With all the, and how can that raise the human rights of the weaker people? I mean, and another example, of course, is Iran, isn't it? We, we saw that, I can't remember his name now, the American guy, uh, official, government official, who admitted that the whole purpose of the sanctions was to screw the uh, Iranian people, impoverish them, create mass unemployment so that it would put pressure, they would become discontented with the government, and hopefully they would change the government. But of course, it never does do that, but it does lead to mass poverty. I mean, <clears throat> and I made, a, I made a point in another meet uh, online video recently, <clears throat> is that sometimes sanctions, which you talked about, which is a disgraceful policy, which is mostly being used to try to achieve regime change, which, by the way, these efforts to, uh, to achieve regime change are against, they're 
explicitly forbidden in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of the UN. And yet they're just doing it all the time. But with, with, these, with these efforts, they're trying to basically, they, they don't achieve it, but what they, these sanctions sometimes do, they're actually worse than wars. More people die from the sanctions than they do in wars. And, and nobody thinks, so people who are putting forward the idea of sanctions in Russia, as they have done, as some kind of acceptable alternative to going to war with the Russians in Ukraine, they don't know what they're talking about. These things don't actually have that effect. I mean, yes, part, yes. part of the sanctions, by the way, just a little example, part of the sanctions that they applied to Venezuela and all these other countries, Iraq and everywhere else, has been to stop medicines being exported. Yes, and food. Yes, yes, yes. They targeted even in Venezuela. Unbelievable. Yes, that was this guy that was providing food for Venezuelans and they targeted him. It is unbelievable. I completely I agree. And as, as Richard Wolf recently told uh, in one of his fav- uh, very popular podcasts, guys, we've been sanctioning Cuba six, since 1961. It didn't work. We've been sanctioning Russia for uh, almost like, like what, 30 years now. It didn't work. It never does. And he had the whole, uh, you know, uh, uh, segment explaining the political economy of the sanctions and how they never worked and they never will. And thank you so much for pointing out that basically this is also a violation of human rights. I mean, you are putting pressure, economic pressure on the citizens of a country, you are making them starve in order for them to rebel because they don't have the right to vote and freedom of expression. How does this work? I mean, you put pressure on them economically and expect them to rebel and then uh, government will come. This is a this is a sham, and unfortunately, there are so little people who, and the, the number of people who really understand that how these things work is very limited. And let us hope mm-hmm. at least that we can make our viewers, I mean, do not believe us, just ask questions, read some books. I will give, and I'm sure Pat will give you a list of, of, um, of books and articles, important ones, and make up your mind if you don't believe us that this is the way, unfortunately, human rights are being weaponized. Thank you so much for this. Uh, to our viewers, please go to our Patreon page and to the extent that you can support us, make a monthly subscription to uh, patreon.com slash This is where you can find us and we'll see you in the next segment when we will go deeper and analyze instances where human rights were used as a weapon against the citizens of the poorest countries. So thanks so much, Pat, and I'll see you soon.